you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn to a different location today than we were, we're, where we're going to end up. This week I received a few emails, text messages, and even some visuals from some of you about how I should have included last week a little red dragon in front of the nativity scene. If you were here last week, you'll understand why I was given those messages. And I'm sorry I disappointed you and didn't think of that before last week, and I, you can see that I didn't think of it this week either. Uh, but today I would like to talk to you about the return of the great red dragon, and I'm going to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 22. One of the advantages of studying the letters that are written by the apostles is that on occasions we are able to see narratives in the gospel accounts that we know they had to be thinking of when they were writing these letters. As the Spirit inspired them, they had to be thinking about these occasions. And I'm convinced that our passage today in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, where Peter is going to exhort us about Satan and how he's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, that Peter was thinking about his weakest moment. And he's going to draw from a very painful episode in his history found in Luke chapter 22. I know this is familiar to you, but I want you to see it in verse 31. And if you're using one of our pew Bibles, that's found on page 882. hope you'll be able to follow along in a copy of the scriptures this morning. Verse 31 says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. I want to speak to you this morning about the invisible war, that cosmic conflict that's taking place. You may or may not remember this, but about six years ago, I actually don't remember it. I was informed about it as I was doing research for this message, but there was an asteroid the size of three football fields that experts said came dangerously close to hitting the Earth. It went by the wonderful fond name of 2000 EM26. Experts say that had it hit the planet, it would have caused significant damage to the Earth's surface. But most of us, perhaps you're one of them, didn't know anything about it. And unless you read the report about these that have specialized equipment, you would have not known that we were in some danger. Then you may remember that in 1985, there was a vessel in the Pacific Ocean that had a little one-man submarine that they let overboard with a scientist inside. It was one of those deep rovers. And it went down some 1,500 feet in the Pacific Ocean where the ocean is a inky black. While the scientist was down there, suddenly out of nowhere came a creature that he never even knew existed, nor does anyone else. It was 120 feet long approximately, it was semi-transparent with thousands of tentacles, and it had dozens of stomachs. And the weirdest thing about it was not just that it was weird, animal, but multiple of these creatures showed up around this little submarine. They surrounded the submarine, and then they gobbled the submarine. No, that's just in Hollywood. They, did, they didn't gobble, gobble them up. But these two incidents I bring to your attention because we are aware that there are things happening around us that we do not see. They're unseen, but we know that they're real. I don't know that anybody in here would deny that there was an asteroid that the scientists were concerned about. 
nor would anybody deny that this scientist who was in this deep rover saw what he said he saw. But do you realize that we as believers have an unseen world, a spiritual world, that Jesus speaks to Peter about that's real? We don't see it. Our senses don't pick it up. But it is just as real as if we were able to behold it. This is the real Star Wars. And here Peter is being warned because he's proud. He says, I'm never going to deny you. I'll go to death for you. You may recall a couple weeks ago, Pastor Joe preached from 1 Peter chapter 5. And he was in those very familiar verses about humbling yourself and casting all your care upon the Lord because he cares for you. But I believe Peter was mindful of this moment where he was very confident that he would not deny the Lord. I mean, he, he was going to be the one that would go to the death. But he actually did deny the Lord. But the Lord Jesus said, I'm praying for you. Satan has demanded you, and he wants to sift you like wheat. Now, please turn over to our text now in 1 Peter chapter 5. Again, I'd love for you to look along with me in the scriptures. So 1 Peter chapter 5, I just want us to consider verses 8 and 9 this morning. I believe Peter had this incident in mind when he, by the inspiration of the Spirit, penned verses 8 and 9. And I further believe that we can take the warning, just like Peter received from Jesus, that Satan has demanded you because he wants to sift you like wheat. So can you look at the scriptures like verses 8 and 9 and say this is not just something that Jesus warned Peter about. It's something that every believer needs to be alert about. This passage says in verse number 7, that famous passage, that we're not supposed to be anxious, but that doesn't mean we're not supposed to be alert. So look at verses 8 and 9. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour resist him firm in the faith knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world c.s lewis has eloquently said that there are two equal and opposite errors that christians face when we talk about demons the devils and the spiritual world the spiritual realm now he says it very eloquently but you need to listen because he always uses interesting words to express himself, he says there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. Here they are. One is to disbelieve in their existence, just kind of dismiss them. The other is to believe and to feel an unhealthy interest in them. We all know people like that, that all they seem to be fixated on is the spiritual, demonic world. But he says the devils themselves, listen to what Lewis says, the devils themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist, the person who dismisses anything they can't sense or see, or a magician with the same delight. Now, which of those eras do you think we perhaps fall into the easiest? Is it dismissing? A materialist kind of like, you know what, I don't really see it, so I don't think about it. Or is it to become too infatuated with all things magical and all things demonic which do you think we would be most tempted to fall into which ditch i think so i i think we would rather dismiss it because we don't see it but i, I want us today to hear that we are in a life and death battle 
And the same challenge that Jesus gave to Peter, I believe he gives to us this morning. And that is this, Satan demanded to have you, and he wants to sift you like wheat. If your name was called out by Jesus, this specifically, would it cause you to be more on alert? I believe so. So this morning, I want us to look at four words that I think will help us organize our passage, and that's the identity or personality, his identity, then his strategy, then I want us to look at the activity that we should have as saints, as well as the solidarity we have with other believers. First of all, his identity. Look at your text. It says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. He uses the word adversary. The Greek word is a compound word, anti-dikos, which simply means an opponent in law or opponent in civil or criminal court. It is an opponent in a lawsuit. It is someone who's on the other side, an adversary, an enemy. It's equivalent to the Hebrew word that we're very familiar with, Satan. So the most common word to describe this arch enemy of God is Satan, and here he is described in the New Testament as an adversary, an opponent. But I don't want us to miss this. There's, there's a pronoun prior to adversary, and what is it? What is it? Your adversary. So folks, th this is not just something out there that people need to be aware of. That around Halloween, everybody ought to you know, buckle up because there's an adversary out there. No, no, this is your enemy. This is your opposition. Yours, possessive pronoun. So, so he makes it very personal to these saints that are spread abroad. He said it's your adversary, the one that's your opponent. I want us to be mindful of this. So for just a moment, we're going to put our doctrinal hats on because I want to ask you, do you have a good biblical theology of Satan? <laughs> you say, well, I never really thought about having one of those. Um, so last week, I think I misspoke and I said that this section of theology would be under pneumatology, which is the doctrine of the spirit. Actually, no, that's not the section. It would be under angelology because demons are fallen angels, as we talked about last week some. But... This is a working definition. I want us to understand that Satan is not a force. He's not an it. Jesus never referred to Satan as an it. He's a creature. He was what? If he's a creature, he was what? Created. Jesus spoke of Satan this way. Luke 10, 18. You may want to jot this down in your notes. He said to them, I saw, this is Jesus, the eternal son of God. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So, so we don't know when Satan fell from heaven, but Jesus does. He, he says, I remember it. Of course he does. He's eternal. He, he remembers when Satan fell. He's not a force. So here is what ought to be your working definition of a theology of Satan. If you took the scriptures and you really encapsulated them, it would say something like this. He is a personal, spiritual being. He's not an it. He's not a force. He is a personal, spiritual being who rebelled against God and he took a third of the angels with him and they became demons. They now do his bidding. He has his own kingdom. His own network is very organized. Ephesians 6, Paul says it this way. These are principalities and powers. That all speaks of structure and organization. Around Pennsylvania, we know it well. It's red tape. <laughs> okay, a lot of bureaucracy in this spiritual world. But they're not only organized, they have a system and they are opposed to all of God's purposes. 
and they use what we call schemes. Are you with me? So Satan is a personal spiritual being who rebelled against God, was thrown out of heaven or thrown out of his position. He took a third of the angels with him. They became a kingdom, a network to do his bidding, his minions, his demons. And they're opposed to God and they use strategies or what we call methods. That's what we, where we get the, the English word methods from his schemes. Paul says we're not ignorant of his devices. That's the word method. He says he has a method. And you know his major goals are to do this. This is your theology of Satan. To keep unbelievers from believing the gospel. He wants them to continue to have blindfolds on their eyes of their soul. According to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And he wants to keep believers, hear this, immature and ineffective in their grasp of the gospel and their proclamation of the gospel. So Satan is your enemy. Whose enemy is he? Your enemy, my enemy. He, he's your adversary. Very possessive pronoun here. He's making it very personal. And, and he is an adversary of God who is opposing all of God's purposes. And he and his demons are using schemes and methods and strategies, very organized, to keep men and women from believing the gospel and to keep you immature and ineffective in your testimony and growth in the gospel and your proclamation of the gospel. That's what he's doing. It's actually pretty simple. So you, you need to know and have a working definition of what Satan is up to. He's your adversary. He's not only your adversary, but he's called here in his identity or his personality, he's called the devil. Do you see that? The word devil is the most common word that we know for Satan. It's diabolos, which means a slanderer. He is one who is always telling lies. He is one who knowingly and deliberately advances false charges against God and God's people. John 8, says he's been a liar from the beginning. So he is your slanderous adversary. He lies to you about God and he lies to God about you. That's what he does. That's his job description. And we're told that he's like a roaring lion. But before I say something about what he's like, I want us to understand that Satan is this personal spiritual being, but throughout the scriptures, there's a variety of names given to him. And that colors our understanding about how vicious this adversary is. I'm just going to hit them real quickly. Here they are. You may want to jot some of them down. He's called Satan, of course, Daystar, son of the morning the anointed cherub, he's called the devil, the tempter, the ruler of the demons, he's called Beelzebub, he's called the evil one, the enemy, the liar, the father of lies, a murderer, ruler of this world, god of this age, angel of light, Belial, ruler of, of the authority of the air, he's called the roaring lion, the adversary, the angel of the abyss, Apollyon, Abaddon, dragon, old serpent, deceiver, the whole world, accuser of God's people, and that's just about a quarter of them. A lot of descriptions, names given to this adversary, but he says, for those of us whose eyes glazed over with the adversary and the devil and the working theology, he says, I'm going to give you a word picture. And all God's people said, yes, thank you. He said, it's like a roaring lion. So he uses the king of the jungle to describe what Satan is like. He is prowling around, you'll notice in the text here, he says, he's like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We all know that the, of all of the beasts in the jungle or in the, 
in, in Africa and other places like that, we would describe as the fiercest, it would generally be the lion. And they'll attack elephants. They've been known to be upwards to 550 pounds. And when I was in Australia and Papua New Guinea, and, and then when I was in Zambia and had one of these opportunities to go out and see some of these animals, really the only fearsome only enemy or adversary that a lion will typically face is a crocodile or a man with a gun. But what do they do? They, they, they attack and they prounce and they, they prey and they, they, they sink their teeth into the neck of their prey and they suffocate them. You may remember the story of the man-eating lions in Savo in Kenya in 1898 and how that some would say almost 135 of those Indian workers that were there putting that bridge over the Savo River were killed by two male lions, just two. Those two male lions have been stuffed and are now in a museum in Chicago. But the, the tale is that once they started having one worker missing and then multiple workers missing, that everybody became sore afraid and they couldn't even work on the bridge because they were so afraid of these man-eating lions. So he uses this descriptor to remind us that this is serious. Now, again, remind yourself about Satan. He's older than we are, but he's still a creature, okay? So he was made before we were made. He's powerful, but he's not omnipotent. He's not God's opposite. Sometimes in talking to other believers, and you'll talk about Satan, one of the things I've found that, be, that some believers are confused about is they'll refer to Satan as almost like the yin-yang or like the, 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 the counterpart of God. He's, he's like God's opposite. He's not God's opposite. He's not omnipotent. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. There is no evil counterpart to our great God. Now, he might be the counterpart or the opposite to Gabriel or Michael. Good case made there that he was one of the archangels. I believe, as a fellow creature, that you could go to two texts. I mentioned these last week, but I want you to jot them down. Isaiah 14 or Ezekiel 28, and you can see what I believe is not just a descriptor of human kings. They were descriptors of human kings, actual human rulers. But the descriptions actually transcend those human historic rulers and they describe Satan's fall. He was a creature of unparalleled beauty, wisdom, virtue. And he aspired to be equal with God, right? That's why he was cast out of heaven. Now there's all this curiosity about when did he fall. The best theory that I lean towards, I'm going to share with you now, is that Satan was... Lucifer, he was a leader, seems to be a musical leader in heaven and with God's angels before the creation of the world. But then there was the decision to create the universe and create the earth. And God, at one point, we're told in Genesis 1 and 2, out loud said, we're going to make man in our image, referring to the Trinity. And that Satan thought that he was going to be the ruler of this new universe this new opportunity these upstart creatures but then he actually made them in his image and god said they were going to have dominion over the earth and satan was so incensed by having these upstart new creatures ruling and having dominion that he rebelled against god now i don't know if that's the way it happened but i i tend to lean toward that theory 
Nevertheless, it seems to fit what happens because as soon as they're created, he comes to the garden and he tempts them and he says that you can doubt God's real goodness. He really doesn't care for you. And then he, he, he goes further and he's wanting to destroy the earth and hopefully he's going to tempt man and woman to sin in such a way that God's holy wrath will destroy these very creatures that he no longer has or didn't have charge of. Perhaps that's the way it went down. I mean, the flood comes and perhaps Satan thought that he had won. But there were those eight that were in the ark. And perhaps he thought he had won when Christ died on the cross. But what we find is that the, the creator actually took his own wrath upon himself in the person of Jesus. So Satan is eager to destroy these image bearers of God because if I were to put his enemies, his, he's an adversary, but this would be the order I would put them in scripturally. Jesus Christ is his enemy number one. We saw that last week. The great red dragon wanted to eat up, gobble up the son of God when he was born. The second one would be the angels. It seems like the battles with the holy angels are his next enemy. The third I would put is Israel. Fourth, believers and then I would put a fifth, unbelievers. He wants to send them straight to hell. So, so that's our adversary. Here it is again, folks. Satan demands to have you, and he wants to sift you like wheat. That's your adversary. Secondly, his strategy. How does he do this? Your adversary, look at our text. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He prowls. He moves around. Now, most of you in this room know, and please don't take offense to this, I do not like cats. I used to like cats when I was younger. I'm not going to get into the story. But one thing I do remember about the cats when I had an affection for them, I no longer do, is when they would approach a mouse or a bird, how they would stealthily, it's like, you know what, you can see the lion in them, okay? It's a little cat, a tiny cat, a moody cat, but similar to the lion, right? And the lion is prowling he's moving around this is important this word means to seek or to look out now remind yourself where in the old testament do we see that satan does this he moves in and out he roams around looking and searching job right remember he comes before the lord and the lord says what you been doing i've been going to and fro the king james version says going all around the earth that's what Satan does. This is really important. Like a lion, he's looking for somebody to devour. That word devour means to gulp up, to swallow up. It's kind of like the big gulp at 7-Eleven. The same word was actually used to translate the Greek New Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, when Jonah was swallowed by the big fish. He says he's looking for dinner, and he wants it to be you. What's his strategy, though? Well, his aim, number one, is to have men and women burn in hell forever. That's aim number one. John 10, 2 Corinthians 4. He also wants to make believers weak and distracted by this world, but he has a method. He has a strategy. Now, you may recall that years ago, Colin Powell said, never be surprised by your enemy. What he was saying is, we, we need to look at scenarios. We need to look at patterns that's how military strategies are born. It's by knowing your enemy. What is he doing? 
Folks, I've already said it to you. I want to say it to you again. Satan is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. He doesn't know your thoughts. This is helpful. Satan is not omnipresent. He's not everywhere. He's ubiquitous, but he's not omnipresent. Did you like that? I just used a big word. Now, you know what ubiquitous means, right? Ubiquitous means it seems like you're everywhere, but you're not. It's like McDonald's. It seems like McDonald's are everywhere, but they're really not. Air is omnipresent, even in California in some spots. It's, it's omnipresent, but it's not, it's not ubiquitous means it seems like you're everywhere. In Pennsylvania, I've learned in five years that it seems like Wawa's are ubiquitous, right? It seems like they're everywhere, and where they're not, they're coming, <laughs> okay? But, but ubiquitous is what Satan is. He, he's not everywhere, but it seems like he is because of his demons and his ability. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know your thoughts, but he's always watching your actions, and he learns. Never assume that Satan is dumber than you. That would be a very bad decision to make. What Satan does is he observes you. Real quickly, in the scriptures, there are a variety of strategies that Satan uses. I'm just going to hit these quick. You might want to jot them down. One, he uses affliction and suffering. He has to have God's permission. We see this in Job 1 and 2. He uses doubts. Genesis 3, he causes you and he wants me as our adversary to doubt God's word. He wants to tempt you. By tempting your flesh, according to James 1. He wants to take sin and make it look appetizing and rewarding and fulfilling. He divides. He divides marriages. He divides churches. He divides homes. He divides and devours. That's his pattern. He even uses scripture. We're told in 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, that in the last days there will be people that will use false doctrine or use doctrine and twist it. And it's the doctrine of devils. But I want you to realize this. In terms of your own adversary, he uses his observation as a lion who's looking and observing against you. So he observes how you, listen to me, he doesn't know your thoughts, but he observes how you and I use the internet. He's watching. He observes how you and I use and scroll our phones. He observes how you and I are distracted how we can not speak of the gospel or not seek the Lord. He knows how we can be ticked off easily and explode like a volcano in anger. He, he knows, he's watched what causes you to speak about or talk about or write about your own envy. He can't see your thoughts, but he knows how you're reacting. He observes these things. He observes the pride. He observes the insecurity. He observes how you get anxious and paralyzed by fear. And so while he doesn't know your thoughts, he's like a lion. He's watching and observing. And he has a good memory. He's been doing this for 4,000 years at least. So what's his strategy? His strategy is to watch and observe you. Have you ever noticed this? It really bothers me. Hopefully it bothers you too. But have you ever noticed when like, you do a Google search for an item that you're wanting to buy or maybe you're looking to buy, and then you go back to social media, like you're on Facebook, and then you see an advertisement for that same product in your feed, and you're like, somebody is watching. Well, we all know who that is, but we, we know they're watching, right? So they're, they're watching and they're observing, but, th but this is exactly the strategy of Satan. 
He, he, he observes. He watches. And so the demonic attack that we're looking at is like a lion. But these lion attacks happen in the routine activities of life. Now, I said to you, Satan is not any dumber than me and you. And I think all God's people should say amen. But if I were to ask you, don't say it out loud, but what are your three or four or five top weaknesses right now in your walk with Christ? What are they? For some of you, it is, is lust. Some of you, it is envy. Perhaps some of you, it's anger. Some of you, it might be slander. Some of you might be just trying to make more money. You want more stuff. Now, now if you listed those five weaknesses, don't assume that Satan is any dumber than you. He, he knows, and he's strategically planned. He knows your weakness. Like a lion. So what should our activity be? That's the third thing. So Satan demands to have you that he might sift you like wheat. We've considered his identity or his personality, his strategy. Next, our activity. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful, resist him firm in the faith. So he's just going to say, be on high alert. This word sober means not to be drunk. He's not talking about beverage, beverages that make you intoxicated. Here he's talking about this lack of sober watchfulness. He's talking about this, this lack of being alert that there is an enemy. In other words, we should not be singing, In the jungle, the mighty jungle, the lion sleeps. He doesn't sleep. <laughs> okay, that's not how we should be living our lives. He, he's actually awake, and he's after us. Some of you may know this, but one of the courses you may take in college or university um, in counseling is a, a, a course called Abnormal Psychology. And it's basically to help you observe um, medically and also in counsel about things that are just aberrant that would be um, considered mental illness. And one of the tests that they give is called the MPI. It's the multi, Multiphasic Inventory Test. Now, I, haven't, and I never took the test, but I do know the questions that are on the test. And one of the questions I know that I would fall prey to, no pun intended. And here's the question. Do you believe the devil is out to get you? <laughs> now, now, they believe that if somebody says yes to that, that they're paranoia. But as a believer, how should you answer that? Do you believe the devil's out to get you? Yes, he says, be sober, be alert. But then he says, here's how you ought to respond. This may sound odd, but he says, stand firm in the what? Do you see it in your text? In the faith. He's saying that there ought to be not only a defense, but an offensive posture that realizes the only way I can stand against this attack is by standing firm in the faith. This is a military term. Now, I want you to notice it has the article in front of faith. Do you see that? So he's not just talking about our subjective faith, my faith, my personal faith in Christ, which is very important. He's talking about the faith, the gospel, this body of doctrine that we believe. And he says, we need to be rooted in that. That's how you stand. You stand in trusting in the triumph of Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and your identification in Jesus. That's how you stand against him. He's talking about street fights. He's talking about battle. So believer, can you stand firm in your faith, in the faith? How well do you know it? 
And this is not to make you feel guilty. It's to, it's to, to charge you, to challenge you. If you're dependent on Sunday mornings only for opening up the word, you are not going to stand firm in the faith. I, I, this is vital, okay? Don't get me wrong. But if this is it. And the Bible doesn't open up all week. And you're not meditating and singing about and praising God for the triumph in Christ and the gospel. You're not going to be able to stand firm and resist. See, the resistant pattern here that he's giving us, he says that this is the way. He, he's not saying, I want to give you some quick steps. It's not digging deeper and trying harder. He, he's saying actually dwelling on the truths of the gospel in a more personal way. Finally, he says there's solidarity here. We're not on our own. Look at this. He says this same suffering is happening with all the brotherhood throughout the world. In other words, every other believer is facing the same adversary. Does that encourage you at all? You can nod your head if it does, or this if it doesn't. Does it encourage you to know that you're not uniquely against this adversary? He, he's your adversary, but he's mine too. And when we come together each Lord's Day, this is the problem with isolation. When we isolate ourselves and we think I can have a, a relationship with Jesus, just Jesus and me, I don't need any other Christians, I don't need the church, I don't need the body of believers. It's like what Luther said, by all means flee solitude, for the devil watches and lies in wait for you most of all when you're alone. This is what the lions in Africa do. They isolate Someone from the herd, an animal from the herd, then they pounce. The most effective work happens by Satan when we're isolated from the church. And folks, we have clawed and striven, striven, I don't know if that's a word. We, we, we really strove to stay connected during this pandemic. We've got a lot of people connected right now through online. This is not easy. <laughs> I remember the, the few months we tried to do it in our house and the, I was told, I was here, but I was told it was not easy, but, but it's necessary, it's necessary for the people of God to say, isolation is never good, this is where Satan and the adversary pounces most often, but I want to conclude with some great news, will you fall, or will you stand, well remember as we started, Jesus said, Peter, Satan has demanded you. He wants to sift you like wheat. But he didn't finish there, did he? Jesus said, I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And then when you're restored, you'll come and encourage all your brothers. Listen to this, dear folks. Jesus promised that Peter would persevere. And he would persevere because he was interceding for Peter. And do you know who's interceding for you? You got it. Hebrews tells us that he ever lives, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the greater lion, who will ultimately destroy this great red dragon. He's praying for you. He ever lives to pray for you. He's at the right hand of the Father right now praying that your faith will not fail. And though he has given permission at times for Satan to sift you as wheat, you will persevere. And you will persevere only because Jesus is praying for you. Isn't that grand news? He's praying for you. 
So we face this adversary with the knowledge that our great lion of the tribe of Judah, he roared, Tetelestai, it is finished. And we look forward to the consummation of this. We see it in Genesis 3.15. We see it on the cross. We see it in Matthew 4 when he's tempted by Satan, but he doesn't yield. He combats it with Scripture. And we look forward to the day when as King of kings and Lord of lords, he takes Satan, this lion who is on the prowl, and he places him in hell forever. And he closes the pit. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the victory that we have in Christ. Help us to trust in his triumph. Cause us to be alert and aware of his strategies. Help us to lean in on the word of God and on the faith. We pray as Christians that we would not just be Sunday morning, hear something from the word, and forget it from Monday to Saturday. But may we be alert and aware that we're in an ongoing battle with our adversary. But we praise you, Lord Jesus, that you have triumphed. And we look forward to the coronation. And we praise you that you hold us. It's not our grip that holds you. It's your grip that holds us. And you will never, ever lose us from your hands. Amen.